But we just want a bit of peace. With so much violence and tragedy, we just want a bit of peace. That's how the French artist Jean-Julien responded to the journalist when he was asked about his most recent picture. You've probably never heard of this artist before, but I bet you've seen his work. He's the guy that painted Peace for Paris on the night of the Paris attacks two weeks ago. It's nothing more than a rough sketch of the Eiffel Tower kind of merged into a peace symbol, and yet it struck a chord with people all around the world. Uh, He posted it on his Instagram account. Uh, the night of the attacks, and by the morning, it had become the unifying symbol in response to the attacks. And within 24 hours, it had already made its way onto t-shirts, it was on banners and posters. The world agrees with Julian. We just want a bit of peace. We're tired of this, we're tired of the violence, we're tired of the tragedy. We just want a bit of peace. But peace seems so elusive right now, doesn't it? It seems so hard to find. Our world is getting more and more chaotic. It gets darker every day. It seems like every day we have a new tragedy to process and our souls can only take so much of it. This is an election year, an election year which only adds to the tension as all of our problems will be brought up to the surface and we will observe what's wrong with us so that one candidate can fix us, right? Even locally, take your mind off of national news, off of global news. Locally, we're not necessarily a sanctuary of peace up here. We have plenty of problems to keep us up at night in our small little town. This brings up an important question and one that a lot of people are asking and probably some of you are asking right now, is peace even possible? Is peace possible? What is the Christian response to anxiety, to the anxiety and brokenness and tension that we see around the world and that we feel in our hearts? What's the Christian response? Certainly we believe that one day Christ will return and restore all things. He will restore order and peace to our world. We believe in that, we hope in that, but what about now? That's an important question. People are asking, what about now? Is peace possible now? Or do we simply have to wade through a few more years of tension and anxiety until finally Christ Returns. If you have your Bible this morning, turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at this very famous and comforting text this morning and see that the scriptures gives us a stunning answer to this question. Peace is not only possible for those who are in Christ, it's promised. The Christian life is a peaceful life. That's what the scriptures will teach us this morning. Again, it's a familiar text, it's comforting, but it's one that our world needs right now. Let's read Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Lord, we take comfort in this text today. I pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds to hear these words in a powerful way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now in these four verses, or the few verses, Paul will outline four disciplines of a godly person and two promises. I'll put the outline up on the screen. It may look a little complex, but it's surprisingly simple. There's two disciplines followed by a promise. 
Two more disciplines followed by a final promise. Here they are. First, be joyful and gentle. First discipline, be, be joyful and gentle, verses four to five. Second, pray thankful prayers. And when you do this, the, the peace of God will guard you. Discipline three, think redemptive thoughts, followed by the fourth discipline, practice godly behavior. And again, when you do this, the God of peace will be with you. Perhaps I could boil it down to a single statement. Fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ are characterized by peace. Let me say that again. Fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ are characterized by peace, not fear. Peace, not anxiety. The promises in this text are astounding. First, God promises his peace, and then the God of peace himself is promised. And yet they're not automatic. Paul will unashamedly link these promises to several disciplines, and so peace is cultivated when we learn to walk with God. Let's dig into the text. First, be joyful and gentle. We'll start with the first discipline in verses four to five. You'll notice that this first discipline is actually a, a, a couple of instructions uh, that I've put here together. Let's read it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's the first instruction. Second, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This seems like an odd way to start a discussion on peace. This text is clearly about peace, and yet he just throws out two seemingly random commands. He challenges the church to rejoice in the Lord always and to be reasonable, or perhaps the Greek word um, gentle is how it's mostly translated, be gentle to everyone. What is Paul doing here? Why is he starting this text out with a couple of just random, um, non-connected imperatives? We need to remember where we are in the book of Philippians. We're in the fourth and final chapter of the letter. Paul does this almost in every letter. At the very end, he'll just kind of string together a few commands and just throw them out there. But they're never random. If you just read them on their own, it just seems random. What is he doing? They're built on his entire argument. And and throughout the letter, Paul has explained the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, he'll tell us what the gospel is, that Christ, though he was God, did not consider that something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to, to death. On a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel. In chapter three, we are challenged to press on in the midst of suffering, in the midst of chaos. And here in chapter four, Paul is simply fleshing out what the gospel-centered life looks like. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not surprisingly, that looks like the joyful humility of Christ. We rejoice in the Lord always and we're gentle to everyone. This is what it looks like to live in a a, a manner worthy of the gospel. And this is particularly important for the Philippian church because it seems like if you look just a couple verses earlier in Philippians 4, you're going to find two ladies that are embroiled in a nasty conflict. We don't know what it was, but it was bad enough for Paul to call them out by name. He urged these ladies to agree in the Lord, and he urged the church to help them agree. And this is why Paul immediately follows this argument, this conflict with the commands to rejoice in the Lord always and be gentle to everyone. Because nothing sucks the peace out of a church like unresolved conflict. Nothing sucks the peace out of a family or a community or an organization like conflict. Conflict breeds tension and anxiety. But Paul encouraged gentleness joyfulness because these two virtues particularly attack conflict at the root. 
Think about that. If you're in a conflict right now, rejoice in the Lord. You will starve that conflict. If you're in a conflict, be gentle. Be reasonable. (laughs) Right? And that conflict will go away. The disciplines of joy and gentleness, among many other virtues, these virtues particularly cultivate peace. At the end of verse 5, though, Paul will put in a random statement. Again, it just seems random. He just says, the Lord is at hand. And we're tempted to read that and pass on, but I, I think that would be a mistake. This, this little statement, the Lord is at hand, I think actually fuels these two commands, to be joyful and to be gentle. All right, the Lord is at hand. It's a fairly broad statement. I think Paul has a few things in mind here. First, I think he means to warn the church. Be joyful always. Be gentle to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. His coming is soon. You don't know when he's coming back, so live in light of his return. The scriptures always ask us to live in light of Christ's return. When Christ comes, how, does, how do you want to be found? I'll give you a hint. You don't want to be harsh. You don't want to be indulging in the cheap pleasures of this world. You want to be faithful, found joyful. You want to be found gentle. Listen to uh, uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, the faithful servant. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants, he treats them harshness, and he eats and drinks with the drunkards, he rejoices in the cheap pleasures of the world. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces, and he will put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, gnashing of teeth. The Lord is at hand. And when he returns on a day that you don't expect, will you be found as a faithful servant, rejoicing in him in every circumstance, being gentle to everyone? Or will you be found indulging in cheap pleasures, being harsh to those around you? Let this text convict you and challenge you. The Lord is at hand. But let it also comfort you. The Lord is at hand. His coming is soon And yet, this phrase is a comfort to the redeemed. The Lord is near. He's coming, but he is also near now. I think we often forget the last line of the Great Commission, but it's the last line of the Great Commission that makes the Great Commission possible, isn't it? We remember the go, the make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We forget the last part, which says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that makes the Great Commission possible because the Lord is at hand. He is near to us now. And it's his presence that actually makes the next discipline possible. Let's move on to verse 6. Paul says this, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, you've probably noticed by now, but Paul is a fan of superlatives. This text is laced with superlatives. I prefer a bit more ambiguity to my language, right? I would have probably said something like, don't be anxious about most things, but in almost everything, prayer's a pretty good idea, right? (laughs) I like a little bit of flexibility because to me, there are certain things in life like global terrorism or complete financial meltdown that actually invoke a bit of anxiety, and that's probably fine, isn't it? 
And there are certain things in life that God really doesn't want to be bothered with. The small things we can take care of. He's not a micromanager. Let's bring the big things to him and we'll take care of the small things on our own. That's how I would have liked to have worded the text, but the scriptures won't allow that kind of ambiguity. Paul says in very clear language, be anxious about nothing. Let that sit with you, nothing. But in everything, pray. In everything, pray. There's really not much room to wriggle out of that text, is there? Be anxious about nothing and in everything, pray. Prayer is abundantly important to the Christian life. It is is abundantly important. Throughout the pages of scripture, you will find people praying in the Bible, encouraging us to pray, and yet we don't. Many of us, we make prayer more complex than it is, and we don't feel qualified, and we don't know how to pray. Either way, the text invites you to pray about everything, to live a life filled with prayer. When I was the program director at TVR, we had to renew our climbing certificates every year, which means we basically hire an expert at a company and they'd come out and teach us how to tie the knots and set up the gear safely. I remember one year this guy came out and he was uh, teaching us how to tie the knots. We all knew how to do it, but we had to do it anyway. But uh, he, at the end, he joked, you know, if you don't know how to tie a knot, just tie a lot. That'll get the trick done, right? That'll get the job done. If you don't know how to tie a knot, tie a lot. I think Paul is essentially saying the same thing about prayer here. If you don't know how to pray, just pray a lot. This is why he puts in there several different synonyms for prayer. He says that don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, devotional prayers, through supplication, begging God, asking him with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. He just piles in all these different synonyms for prayer, and he's just saying, pray a lot about everything. Just pray. If you don't know how, pray. <laughs> it's not about the technique necessarily. It's about the relationship and building trust in God, cultivating that relationship pray. That's the point. The reason that we need to pray, the reason that Paul will, will, will uh, encourage prayer so much is because prayer builds trust. This is why prayer can be offered as an antidote for anxiety, because anxiety is the complete absence of trust. Anxiety occurs when you don't trust God, and so Paul says pray so that you will trust God. Now, this is critically important because if you're not careful, you'll turn this very famous text into a formula, and it's not meant to be a formula. That will frustrate you. If you say, well, I'm anxious, I'm worried, I get really stressed out, and I pray, and I'm still worried what's happening here. You know, I'm sure some of you have been there before. I'm worried, I'm pr I try prayer, but it's not working. Well, you need to realize that your prayer doesn't kill anxiety. God kills anxiety. Prayer builds trust in God. It's about God. It's about knowing God and developing trust in God. It's not a formula, it's about your relationship with the Lord. You pray to know him more. You pray to trust him more. This is why Paul says to make your prayer known with thanksgiving. This is the key to the entire text, is thankful prayers. I think it's very interesting that Paul encourages thankful prayers, before, make your request in thanksgiving before God even answers them. So before God even says yes or no or maybe or wait, you're saying thank you. How can you have the confidence to thank God before he answers your request? Don't we usually break it down? We usually look back at all the bad things in our life and we make a prayer, prayer list and then we look back at all the good things in our life and we thank him for that. Paul, Paul says, no, 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 thank him for everything. 
You can have the confidence to pray thankful prayers because you trust that God is truly working out everything for your good. He's a good God, and he can be trusted. No matter what he says, you know that he has your best in mind, and it will be the best. And so we say, God, here's my request. Thank you. No matter how you answer, thank you. This type of prayerful posture where we're praying all the time and we're thanking him before we even get our word and our answer, that posture weeds out anxiety. And that's the posture that leads to the first promise in verse seven. Read it again. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ pray thankful prayer, the peace of God will guard their hearts and it will guard their minds. That's astonishing. What is this peace? I can't explain it. The text won't let me. I know that that's part of my job here this morning, but I can't. The text won't let me explain it and break it down. I just proclaim it. The peace that God has in the Trinity right now with the Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit is the peace that guards your hearts and guards your minds when you're praying. God's not worried right now. He's not anxious. He's not stressed. He's not staying up late at night watching cable news, wondering what's going to happen. He's complete. He's perfectly content. And that is the barrier that will be around your heart and around your mind when you pray and when you press in and when you trust in the Lord. That's the promise of the scripture. If you've ever struggled with anxiety, you know how elusive that it is and you know how powerful it can get in. It can slip past your own boundaries and your own guards. That's why we need something powerful to defend our hearts and minds for us. We can't do it ourselves. Anxiety slipped into my life uninvited in the seventh grade. I remember I was sitting in class, two rows up, one row over, I guess, yeah, one row over. Um, One of my classmates fell on the ground and he began to have a seizure. If that weren't traumatic enough, one of, my class, one of my teachers ran over to him and she was screaming, don't let him swallow his tongue. That comment wrecked me. <laughs> I was like, you can swallow your tongue? <laughs> Why has nobody told me this before? I've been living on the edge for my entire life and I didn't even know it. <laughs> and that really did me in. It, it took a, light, a year out of my life, I'll tell you that, right? I I can't really explain it, but that fear of swallowing, really, it turned into a massive fear of swallowing for a a year, right? Um, You can ask my family, it was miserable. And in retrospect, as I've been thinking back on that year, I'm sure it was more miserable for them than it was for me, (laughs) right? And no matter what they tried, no matter what they said, Michael, you're okay. (laughs) No, I'm not, no, I'm not. (laughs) I can't do it. (laughs) It was torture, Um, No matter what they said to me and no matter what they tried, no matter anything, I couldn't shake my fear. Um, That's that's the way anxiety works and fear works. It slips in and it grabs a hold and it won't let go. You can't reason with irrational fears, can you? They're irrational. They won't be reasoned with. In other words, your mind can't protect yourself. You can't produce the boundaries on your own. You can't produce the boundaries around your heart. God has to do that for you. And that's what God promises and God offers you. Pray thankful prayers and the God of peace will encompass your hearts and your minds. Now, I realize my example is small. At the time, it wasn't, but I know it pales in comparison with the fear and the anxiety that many of you deal with on a daily basis. And I realize that's serious 
and very real, and I'm, I'm not trying to get into the complex issues of dealing with these major anxiety issues. I acknowledge them. And I acknowledge there's godly men and women that can help with medications. I'm not saying anything about that. Hear, hear me. I'm not saying anything about that. Those can help. But no matter where you are and what your relationship with fear and anxiety is this morning, hear the word of God. It is for you. The peace of God will guard the hearts and minds of those who walk with him. It's a peace that passes understanding. It's the peace that can turn fearful, anxious people to people of trust, to people of faith. It's the peace that passes understanding. Now we could conclude here, but Paul's not quite done. He's gonna list out two more disciplines. He's got more to say about this issue and he's gonna crescendo into another final stunning promise. Let's go through these more quickly. Discipline number three, think redemptive thoughts. This is uh, in verse eight. Let's read it again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you want peace, Paul says, pack your head with the best thoughts possible. Paul instructs the Philippians to think redemptive thoughts. Now, you have to realize that this is counterintuitive. This is not how our world teaches us how to find peace. And it's not how you naturally want to find peace. Think about what you do after, at the end of a particularly anxious and stressful day. You want to get home and you want to, I just need some peace and quiet. I just need to think about what? Nothing. This is why we watch TV. Because TV requires absolutely nothing from us. TV does not make us better people, but we are addicted because we like it, because we don't have to think. We veg out on it. We um, maybe play a video game. You surf the internet. You surf social media because that requires nothing from you. You empty your mind. You go on a jog. You go on a drive. Whatever it is, you, I, I'm sure there's billions of things that you do to not think, to get away from your thoughts, and yet the Bible asks you to do the exact opposite. When you're stressed, when you're anxious, Pack it full of the best thoughts possible. It's possible. Think good thoughts. If you're anxious, fill your mind. You should ask the deep questions. Now, the world is going to say you're crazy. It's like, I'm really worried about this. I need to ask the deep questions in life. What is truth? The world would say, no, no, you're crazy. But that's what the scriptures invite you to do. Whatever is true, think about these things. Sometimes we're fearful and anxious because we've forgotten truth. You've forgotten truth. If you're particularly worried right now about what is happening in our world, I want to invite you to brush up on theology. Get a biblical perspective of history. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. Um, if you can't go to, if, you, if you're like losing sleep at night, put a thick book of systematic theology by your bedside table and read a doctrine every night. Fill your mind with truth. It will enrich your life so much. That's what Paul is saying. Fill your mind with truth. It's a lot better than cable news. It's a lot better than cable. Fill your mind with truth. Learn doctrine. Memorize the Apostles' Creed. Over the uh, week, we were down with Lara's family, and they have an old hymnal laying around. And I just picked it up and looked at some songs of thanksgiving, and I was enriched. Some of the old hymns, um, the hymns we sing this morning are incredible. Right? Anxiety feeds off of lies and embellishments and assumptions about you and about our world and about God and about your neighbor and about your spouse. That's how anxiety makes a living in your heart, in your head. 
It feeds off of lies. And so when you fill it with truth, you will push anxiety out. You'll starve fear. The list goes on. We should think about things that are pure and lovely and commendable. I mean, it's just this beautiful, wonderful list. Sometimes I think we're anxious and fearful because we've detached ourselves from true beauty. We are content to digest garbage and junk. I find myself telling our students all the time to check their inputs. Like those little tiny white strings leading up to your ears. What's going through those white strings? What's, what's, what are you pumping into your head? What's on your Netflix queue? That affects you so much more than you know. I, when I was in college, I would have sworn that, no, man, I'm fine. It's just a show. Just zombies eating people's faces. It's fine. It's all right. Man, those things affect you. Check your inputs. If you're an anxious person right now, look at your Netflix queue, look at your, your playlist, and maybe that's why you're fearful right now. It's because you've detached yourself from true beauty. If you take yourself away from true beauty, you'll only experience false peace. That's why it's good for us to re- read redemptive books and redemptive music and, and uh, watch redemptive movies. Now, I don't think we need to limit ourselves to the things that are found in the Christian section. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here, right? There's a lot of lovely and beautiful art that's not marketed in our current culture as Christian. There's really good books out there, really good movies, really good mu- music um, that we're invited to enjoy and to celebrate and to think about. I found that classic novels have a really good way of enriching my life and surprisingly drawing me closer to the Lord. Just re- old books. Read the old ones. They're great. Um, put that next to your systematic theology, right? Fill your mind with beauty. Perhaps the most practical way to feed your mind with truth and beauty and justice and excellence. No, not perhaps. The way is to immerse your brain and immerse your heart with the scriptures. This is the source of truth and honor and justice and purity and loveliness and this beautiful list of eight characteristics that Paul mentions It's in the scriptures, right? You can certainly find them outside of the Bible, All truth is God's truth. When you find these virtues outside of the Bible, delight in them, think think on them, celebrate them, and yet you will never locate them unless you're grounded in this book. So start here and then branch out. The ultimate goal of good thinking and filling our heads with wonderful thoughts is godly behavior. This is the final discipline. In verse nine, Paul says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He could have simply stopped with the first command. Just think good thoughts, that's enough. But that's not the goal of the Bible, ever. God wants to sanctify your mind, but he also wants to sanctify your behavior. Godly thinking must translate into godly living. They go hand in hand. So as you fill your mind with beauty and with truth and with these wonderful things, let them play out in your life. Paul actually happened to be a worthy example of the lifestyle he was looking for. He could freely say to the Philippian church, whatever you've seen me do, do that. That's a, that's, that's a starting point, right? Most of us are too shy to say that, aren't we? Like, hey, I want you to follow me. What you see me doing, do that. We're too shy, maybe we're too guilty, too ashamed to say that. Paul wasn't being arrogant, though. Just a few verses earlier, he clearly communicated I'm far from perfect. Listen to this in chapter three of verse verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or I'm already perfect. No, no, no. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. This godly example, this pattern of life was very crucial to Paul. It's crucial throughout the scriptures. 
We're to set godly examples for others to follow. We're not being arrogant. This is what the scriptures call us to do. He was living a life that was worthy of the gospel. And so he could say, watch me. I'm not perfect, but watch me live in light of the gospel. Can you say that? Have you ever said that to somebody else? Watch me for a little bit. Watch me. I'm not perfect, but I want you just to follow me around for a few days and watch how I live out the gospel. That's one of the joys, one of the many joys of mentoring, one of the many joys of discipleship. Nothing keeps you grounded in the scriptures and grounded in the gospel other than knowing somebody else is watching you. That you've said, follow me. That's gonna keep your nose in the gospel, isn't it? I'm not perfect. I wanna lead these people to Christ. I wanna lead them to Jesus. If you've never told someone else to watch you live out the gospel, you're missing out on one of the joys of discipleship. As we think good thoughts and we flesh them out in our lives, we can expect another promise. You can find it at the end of verse nine. The God of peace will be with you. Two verses earlier, Paul promises that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds, and now he says, the God of peace will be with you. That's stunning. It's one thing for God to send his peace to guard you. It's another thing for God to come himself. And yet that's the promise of the gospel, is it not? He doesn't send these abstract virtues, he comes. It's the promise that we get to contemplate this Advent season as the candles are burning and as we rehearse that long wait for Christ. We get to contemplate that the Advent of Christ was the Advent of peace. Peace is possible now because Jesus was born. It was promised many, many, many years before he even came to Isaiah for to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you remember the cry of the angels when Jesus was born? And Luke, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm not even sure the angels knew exactly what was happening that night. And yet they knew that little baby lying in a manger meant peace for the world. And they rejoiced. They said, peace has come. And sure enough, when that boy grew up, his entire life was characterized by peace. He walked around. Remember, he was in the the boat and they were capsizing. And he wakes up and with a word, he calms the storm. He walks up to a boy that is foaming at the mouth and wreathing. And he casts out a demon with a word. With a touch, he heals a hemorrhaging woman and heals leprosy, and he restores peace and order with a word, with a touch, everywhere he goes. He restored peace. And then on the cross, he demonstrated his eternal plan to restore peace completely to anyone who would believe. He did this by taking all of our sin and all of our disorder and anxiety on himself. He hung on the cross experienced our fear and our anxiety. Cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took our sin, he became our sin, the Bible says, so that we could take on God's righteousness and peace. As Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, our world wants just a bit of peace. They're putting it on their Facebook profile. They just want a little peace. And they're asking, is it possible? They're, they're doubting right now. They don't think it's possible. And they're hungering for it. They're craving it. And, and, and it is possible. It is possible because Christ has come. We can experience peace. We can boldly proclaim the peace and give them the answers that they're asking for right now, the question, to the questions they're asking right now. We can proclaim peace because God has come. The God of peace is with us now. Let's pray.